and Alex Bag is talking about her own struggle with her artistic practice and um, her own sense of discomfort with navel gazing as an artist mm -hmm. and whether or not that is a worthwhile undertaking or if it's just simply self-indulgent. And I think it was an illustration, quite honest and compelling, I thought. I was moved by it. I believed she was actually having this breakdown and struggle with herself. Um, but I thought all of the fragmented imagery had to do with the sort of fragmentation in her own mind. Um, but she's making the personal very political, isn't she, Johanna? I mean, the, the American flag and uh, religious imagery uh, abounds. It seems, aren't these to some extent the very familiar sort of targets of video art, of um, uh, official, an artist selected to have a, a show at the Whitney, that you sort of, it's, 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 it's a ritual. It's something that one really has come to expect. A little attack on the church and a little sort of deconstruction of Americanism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that troubling to us, or is it? Are we just happy with it? Is that okay? Um, are we happy that that the kind of critical impulse has been stylized and aestheticized? Not, not really. I, I, I'm not totally. But on the other hand, I feel like. There is something interesting about playing with that, those signifiers as they sort of mm -hmm. operate. I, I have conversations with my students all the time about um, the question about if criticality or um, being sort of earnestly critical is impossible. Um, and I think, of course, it's not. I think if we if we think that for a minute, then what's mm -hmm. the what's the point? Um, and I actually feel like, as as has come up, I think John was saying this as well, that playing with what is actually uncomfortable versus what we might perceive to be uncomfortable is pretty interesting. Um, obviously, attacks on um, kind of uh, uh, the institution at this point have been pretty recuperated, recuperated by the institution themselves. But there was something very interesting to me about how Alex Bag did seem to provoke a certain kind of discomfort in people, even myself, where because I wasn't totally sure if I could uh, subscribe some real critical impulse um, without allowing for a supplement of something that was just kind of frankly embarrassing that there's something interesting about that. Um, it's not my aesthetic uh, it, at all in many ways, and that's something I also have to think about. I do think it's interesting also for female artists um, versus male artists. Mike Kelly does things that look much like this, and, and everyone assumes that it's wildly critical and wonderful. Um, people hu humping stuffed you know, toys, um, uh, really. Um, and Alex Bag, we have this kind of question. And so for me, gender becomes a really interesting um, notion when it has uh, to do with this idea of kind of going reversion to kind of childlike um, embarrassing tactics. So it's something that I, again, think is interesting and, and brave in a certain, to a certain degree in her work. Well, Johanna will be pleased that we have a, a, a three out of four female lineup in the artists we're looking at today. But let's actually move on to our next artist, who I think may indeed be our token male. Um, and we've been to see David Diao's uh, exhibition uh, at Postmasters. There's a couple of installation shots. Uh, I lived there until I was six. first painting one encounters.
So, uh, John, uh, self-indulgence was mentioned a couple of times in relation to uh, uh, in relation to the Alex bag with its gratuitous sort of overlay of uh, self-commentary and multiple images and so on and so forth. Here we have a much more, um, in many ways, refined, austere, focused uh, exhibition, and yet it's an exhibition about a personal memory and lack of memory. So did you get the sense that these um, quite sharp, cool, cerebral sort of paintings were self-indulgent or uh, repressed or something in between? Or what, was the, what, what was the relationship of self to imagery and, and painting in, in, these, in these works, did you think? Well, they contain many of these uh, dualisms or polarities that you describe, and that's part of what makes this a kind of beguiling show. You don't know whether to come away thinking that it's completely self-indulgent or to come away thinking it's a quite elegant response to different uh, autobiographical impulses that have occurred in Diao's life. And in a way, you could compare it to Alex Bag because Diao is relating to the art historical uh, movements of his time and incorporating those or weighing them against his own personal autobiographical experiences. He, just to give you a little background, has been a long-standing member of the New York painting community since the early 70s and emerged at a time when post-painterly abstraction and uh, reductive uh, geometric painting were sovereign. And he was early on quite successful uh, in those particular uh, definitions of painting. But as he moved into the 80s and began showing at Postmasters in the East Village, he became really a much more self-consciously critical artist, borrowing from sources such as Russian suprematist uh, examples. Uh, but then he moved into using himself <laughs> as a subject. We have been uh, through a decade and a half of so-called identity art and both of these artists could fall into that definition. When you first walk into the David Dio show, you think, wow, you know, this is a great uh, looking show. You're looking at formalist works, which are executed uh, really in a, in a satisfying way with regard to materials and so forth. And then you realize you're getting drawn into this autobiographical narrative that has to do with the search for his own identity as a boy in China and that he uses the language of painting in a way that it's not often used, always referencing abstract painting, geometric painting, reductive painting, think uh, Marden, uh, you know, palette knife panels. And um, to me, one of the things that's surprising about the show is how kind of felicitously open-ended it is. It really isn't polemical. It, it goes around and round in circles and never quite finds itself. This is both a satisfying and unsatisfying quality, but ultimately you have to kind of award Dio kudos mm. for his honesty mm. in, in terms of how he's treated the subject matter and the medium. Yes. Sarah, did you have the sense of um, a sometime abstract painter um, exploring a personal theme within the language of abstract painting, or did you have a sense that uh, the theme was almost chosen in order to deconstruct, in a way, abstract painting, which, which came first for you in, as you looked around the show, the, the, the form or the content, the uh, abstraction or the conceptualism? It seems to me he's been interested in abstraction for quite some time and is using that sort of language to unpack his personal experience. Um, in the show, there are 10 paintings that um, in some manner or another um, 
include the form of a tennis court. And he has a sort of odd coincidence in his life of having grown up in this house um, in China where he, it was taken by the Communist Party when he was six years old, hence the title of the exhibition. And um, then when his father had relocated the family to New York, um, his parents were divorced. We learned this through a timeline that is on a multi-panel painting that is very beautiful and um, interweaves big global events like um, Tiananmen Square and 9-11 with um, things that have happened to him in his life. And so we get a good sense of his history. And by um, continually painting the tennis courts, is, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention the second event. His father died on a tennis court while playing tennis um, in New York. Um, and I, I got the sense that he was trying to somehow control the past or the unfortunate parts of his past that he wished maybe mm -hmm. hadn't gone that way by continually revisiting this symbol. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, there was almost, I mean, I don't know if Freudian is the right, but unconscious or like something he was trying to work out. And there were also <laughs> different sorts of maps in a show like the Google Earth map that w was just projected. It's um, the spot where his former home used to be. And then an old, um, an older, I guess, hand-drawn, I'm not sure how it was generated, map. Um, yes. So he's circling this thing. Um, yes, there's, there's, a, there's a Joanna, isn't there? There's, a, there's an absolute um, um, multiplicity of ways to map, ways to represent schemata. Um, the Google map that Sarah mentions, but also, and, and the, 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 the very refined, pared down schemata of the tennis court, but then also um, integrating kind of hand-drawn notes. His, uh, his, not, his, his old uncle had sent a little diagram of this family compound, which is obviously, this was a, his grandfather's a nationalist politician, obviously a sophisticated fellow. It must have been quite unusual in the 20s to build a house at the tennis court in Sichuan province. So, um, uh, but still, art and language. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's odd for somebody who had been a, re a real abstract painter to be using um, the language of abstraction in a way that can surely only be sensed as deconstructive when it's effectively being used to make wall panels. What did you think? Did you think the, the, the conceptual and the abstract sat together happily, or did you think that there was a little bit of a, a sort of dig at, at his abstract past? Um, I, what I liked so much about this show in relationship, and it, this will get to the language question that you're getting to, is there was a kind of um, scrappiness to this work, even though it was extremely elegant, and I liked that there was a way in which, and I, want, I would love to hear John talk about this, they are extremely successful as paintings, but they're made in all of these different ways, where, for instance, the Google map is pasted onto a kind of beautiful um, painterly background. So there are these kind of bringing together of kind of collage elements or the kinds of images that you wouldn't think about in terms of high art production, necessarily. And the, these things come together weirdly without producing some kind of um, unpleasant tension, but weirdly kind of fold into each other in a way that, it, for me, was kind of unexpected and, and quite beautiful. Um, in terms of the language um, construct or the question about how language operated, I felt like the, the language operated as an object almost as much as the, the kind of painterly materials did themselves, but did point to these different kind of legacies of art production. 
Um, and the, the painting that Sarah was talking about that kind of maps out the trajectory of this one person, this one individual's life, then in relationship to larger kind of events that were going on in history, Tiananmen Square and other things, um, reminded me of very political work by artists like Group Material um, in the 80s that were trying to really directly talk about how personal life and kind of collective political life can't be thought as separate from each other. Of course, one's um, kind of huge life events that are happening on a personal level are always happening simultaneously with bigger kind of um, things going on. So for me, the language was this kind of really nice way of, of talking about different legacies of conceptualism, say, but also reinvesting the word with a kind of affective property that we don't associate necessarily with conceptual um, right. practices. Um, and to me, that was quite quite interesting and made me think about people like Lee Lozano actually who was super interested in thinking about that one one didn't know if they were looking at a diary page or a conceptual artwork I mean she did she uh, did whole uh, works about you know how much pot she smoked in a single day and either that was like a diary or it was really an artwork um, uh, so I, I think that there's something interestingly um, going on here um, similar to people like Lozano, who wanted to push the boundary um, between kind of uh, dry conceptualism and wet painting. Um, to, quote, wet. to quote, that's a, that's well, I was just going to say, nice, there's uh, Mira Shore, the, the, yes. the wet painter herself, so I just wanted to say wet, wet painting and dry discourse are not always so separate. <laughs> this, that's, a, that's a wonderful phrase, wet and dry in relation to, to Diao, don't you think, John? I mean, uh, the painting like... The, a painting like the one of the tennis balls, well, in fact, it's just called balls, it's, as you say, as you intimated, could be something right out of constructivism or suprematism. Um, but, of course, within the context of this um, exploration, we relate to, to balls, but we might also relate to Chinese flags and things. So um, it, it, it's, there's a constant back and forth between the possibility of it being in a pure realm and it's being absolutely very... Um, integral to, to um, language, display, um, and, and, and a, a kind of quite rudimentary sort of signification. Um, did, were you able to enjoy any of the paintings as paintings per se, or was it, con was it constantly um, being drawn back into a kind of um, art about art experience? Well, I certainly enjoyed them the moment I walked into the gallery, and I thought, this is a great-looking show. Um, but I do find that I am perhaps distracted by constantly having narrative imposed upon visual experience or artists who feel the need to, uh, and this isn't really fair to David, but you know, have their cake and eat it too as far as imposing narrative on mm -hmm. abstract configurations. I think this show is more open-ended and mm -hmm. gentle than that. But I do recall when I was first starting out as a painter, I, I commented on those paintings that Dio had shown at Postmasters and you know how much I liked the materiality and the treatment of the paint, and he kind of came back at me with this riposte and said, "You know, oh, I can do that." You know, and he has kind of almost a mistrust of paint and materiality for the sake of paint and materiality. In this show, you see this kind of uh, struggle between the need to explicate things from a narrative, autobiographical point of view, and uh, having kind of fallen into this language mm. so early in his life, and quite successfully, I, I, I should say, early in his career. Also, with regard to uh, Alex Bagg, this is the second, you know, Oedipal struggle. 
mm. including you know the death of the father. Um, mm. So, uh, but in this case, because the you're really talking of the about and the death of the father. So. Yeah, and in this case, you're also talking about uh, a Westernized cultural experience, mm. and then moving back into a non-Westernized you know idiom or different different way of thinking about it. Uh, Might so, one even want to construct a kind of Chinese aesthetic that would be dismissive of my suggestion that the conceptual and the abstract are as mm. separate a realm as they are? I agree with that assessment. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I'm attracted to that assessment. Suspicious <laughs> of it. Um, because I, I don't know about you, Sarah, but I always get worried when there's an artist, say, um, who maybe had a background as a figurative painter, who says, "I can do that when I want." and then makes conceptual work, which deploys a little bit of academic realism, say, and says, well, you know, I, I, I proved that I could do that. Now, we, we saw in the show here, uh, High Times, Hard Times, uh, beautiful early work by, by David Dio, so we, we know that actually he can do that. But um, painterly achievement is not a static thing. It's not a question of you check a certain box that you can do realism or you can do abstraction, and then you just sort of move on. It's an ongoing exploration. So. Do you, do you feel, Sarah, that there is an ongoing exploration of the, 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 the intrinsic qualities of abstract painting in, in a body of work like this show? I thought the work itself was visually quite strong. It was very intelligent, yet there was something, I think, as you said in your opening remarks, quite cold and controlled about it that made um, it not so compelling. I mean, his childhood experience. I didn't quite buy it. I didn't feel the loss of this home as something that had been a major event in his life. It wasn't mm. fleshed out in a way that made me believe that it had really mattered to him. And it's interesting to think of it in comparison to the Alex Bagg show because I felt there's something, even for the admitted self-indulgence mm -hmm. of this video, she was being quite honest. It was um, her confessions of her own experience were quite visceral, whereas uh -huh. David Dio's um, description of his past and his life were very, um, I don't know, chronological, information-based. Um, so he was homing in on a subject. Stenciled, even. And a lot of the text right. in this show was Chinese. And I know the issue of... Um, Translation is difficult, can't be done exactly, but um, it did make opaque the content of a lot of the work because, I mean, for those of us who don't speak Chinese, it well, was pretty, but... It, ah, but I think actually uh, just a little bit of inquiry f was able to, to ascertain that, for instance, the second white painting we saw, The Grid, mm -hmm. was a, a literal Chinese translation of the first text, the one on green, mm. which is like an intro, an intro panel. Rather, as one would see, if we were going to a painting, a show of any subject, you'd have a a nicely printed panel of black on white. So that's, that's where I felt that there was a sort of game going on with uh, a kind of deconstructive game about painting and language that you, you basically was just using paint panels to do what you would do in a wall text panel and then giving us a painting. So there was a, there was a sort of, um, I don't know how convincing, but there was a, there was a, there was a sort of deconstruction of, of painting going on there. Anyhow, um, let's see of what our audience makes of these two shows and whether, like us, they're able to relate the one to the other. So um, have we got a roving mic for the evening? Excellent. The lady here with a nice big scarf is coming around with a nice big mic. Do, <laughs> do use it. And um, uh, there's no... You, you can mention either of the shows, Bag or Diao, as you prefer. There's a lady there. Yes. All right, front row. Thank you. 
And do please use the mic so we can record you for posterity. Shall I speak? Yes. Um, I am a Golden Life a member of the Art Students League for 55 years. There was a man selling books about the artists' lives. I think I have the book on every known artist. What is the quality uh, that you feel makes of thousands and thousands of artists, what is the quality that makes some art live forever and others just Okay, That's, that, that is one of the big questions we've got to constantly ask ourselves, but in relation to specific shows, I don't think, unfortunately, in the context of, of these two shows that we're reviewing, we're going to quite get to the philosophical basis of that <laughs> question. The second, yes, okay, you, you take it where you want to go. Okay. <laughs> Yes. I'm probably the only abstract painter I know that actually liked the identity politics epoch and wish that it hadn't been squashed <laughs> through a backlash. Um, and I do think there is a very big difference between identity politics and, and purposefully uh, polemical work and autobiography. So that's not a question. No, no, you, that's great, thank you. No, no, I'm, what I'm saying is no, no, I, I'm one of those moderators who doesn't say you have to ask a question. Statements are great, we like statements, but just succinct ones like that, great. My question is for David Cohen. Um, no offense to Joanna Burton, but I really liked your question. I think you were asking about the relationship in, ter um, in relationship to um, Alex Bagg. Um, the question was about the relationship of the brain to oh. art and television, or would it really be the question, would it be the relationship between thinking and seeing? And if you could answer that in light of my favorite patch, which was the dance teacher that taught the children to paint with their feet. My job is to ask questions, and I, I invite distinguished people to come along and answer them, and they, they do if they want to. But uh, I get the drift of your question. It's a good one. But I, I'm going to convert your question into a statement and take it as such. Joe? <laughs> no, I mean, what the questioner is asking is... is, is well, it's more of a comment where it sounded like there's this... You were trying to figure out whether David D.L. sort of went from being an abstract painter to you know, a conceptual painter involved with language. And as I remember his progression, there was a point where he went from being a hard edge abstract painter to somebody who was doing um, these kind of amalgamums of Robert Motherwell and Russian constructivism with these little suprematist prisons. Prisons, yeah, that's and right. And then he, he began to move um, uh, the same period of Russian constructivist graphic design into his paintings. So then you had this kind of figure ground thing between Russian and Chinese text and the same period of graphic design uh, combined with paintings, right? So there was kind of an organic development towards this, um, you know, colored ground and, and textual support thing that I think began there and just continued to expand more than I think there was uh, a decision. So. Uh, for all of the conceptualism, it seems to me there was also a kind of painterly uh, progression. Great. Thank you. Uh, yes. Okay. I, 
think that artists and writers always have to deal with the question of how much do they put into their art and how much do they reveal and how much do they hold back. So when I look at art like this, I, I kind of feel, I didn't see the Alex Bag show, but I have a feeling that maybe in my, my, the things that I like, she may have given too much. I think we want to keep some mystery and some, um, a place where the viewer can contribute their own experience. And so I would have liked a little more out of David Diao um, because I couldn't relate to it entirely. And from what I saw of Alex Bag, I would have liked a little less, a little <laughs> more mystery, a little more place to move around. All right, that might well be an assessment some of us share. Good, let's now move on then, I think, to our next couple of shows. If we could dim the lights, please. And we are next going to have a look at Mona Hatoum, whose uh, exhibition is at uh, Alexander and Bonin. This is a general installation shot of the first room downstairs, Kefia, uh, a work using uh, silk organza with metal thread and canateal embroidery. There you see the close-up of the uh, familiar uh, Palestinian headscarf. Um, okay, thank you. And uh, a prayer rug, which, which, or not necessarily a rug, I should just say, a rug with some sort of um, land masses um, burnt or scratched out of it, a little slower maybe. Uh, a, a trolley uh, with these um, glass grenades. <coughs> Still life with grenades. 2006 to 7. Some close ups. Yep. Oh, okay. There was an installation. We'll come back to it probably. So, this is on the second floor. Uh, this rather cheese grater bed form, which uh, only an Indian yogi would find comfortable to sit upon. Did we lose some? Okay, right. I hope we didn't lose. Oh, here it is. Good. Yes, this is. It's a, a pause on this one for a moment. This is the installation in the room downstairs, uh, Mizba, uh, which has a, a, a sort of lamp traditional kind of lamp, Middle Eastern lamp, but with soldiers cut out so that they, as the lamp rotates, these soldiers silhouetted rotate around the room. Next, please. Yes, and this is the first thing you see, uh, interesting segue from uh, David Diao around the corner, um, a signage, uh, you know, a street sign waiting as forbidden. Okay, thank you. So, Johanna, uh, waiting is forbidden. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> Gosh. Um, there's, I mean, for me, there's a lot to say about Mona Hatoum, who I have um, been interested in for a long time and who I've always felt... Um, I mean, what, what's interesting about a show like this is, without knowing her history, I think, you could walk in and... Um, 
see it as extremely formal, which I think is an interesting way also to talk about the relationship to David Diao's work. Um, and where and how we kind of make meaning in front of these objects becomes, um, becomes interesting. And uh, while I really respect her practice and have for a long time, I also feel like it does have a particular um, way of both, and maybe this is get, get, to get back to your point about sort of where one treads. It treads both very hard and very lightly at the same time. And sometimes I wonder with work that's so um, kind of uh, brave about being explicitly political and yet um, kind of leans on the formal um, very heavily, um, how to think about the kind of joint project. And so there's a, a real pleasure in these, some of these um, objects, but there's also a real, um, not a real subtlety when it comes to a kind of political um, message. And, I, I think about this a lot, and especially in terms of my own um, dedication to critical and political practices, what good, in, in some cases, some of this kind of work actually does, or who it speaks to, or what it hopes to address, um, which isn't to say that it isn't important, but I wonder if people walk in um, and see the work and feel changed in their own opinions, or if that's what it's meant to do. So the grenades are a really good example of this for me, where they're beautiful, they're seductive, um, there's something also kind of silly and strange about them. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure what work is being done um, through these particular forms, um, especially in a world where we're extremely aware, or many of us are extremely aware of the kind of complications around violence. And because Hatoum um, is Palestinian, how very, very real these questions are for her and have been for a long time. I mean, to go back, I feel like now I'm just gonna hammer home the feminism thing every time I speak, so I apologize, it's what I do. Um, I used to really find the particular um, weaving of her kind of inquiries into um, being Palestinian and also a woman um, turning to kind of the domestic sphere in a particular way, extremely interesting and important. And I feel like that's going on here, but in a, in a much less sort of overt way. I mean, obviously gender is brought up. Obviously these questions are um, important, but she's leaning, I think, kind of away from some of the strangeness of the earlier work for me, or the kind of mm -hmm. panic that she would invoke in me as a viewer, where I felt like my body was sort of being interpolated or being called upon, what would happen to me. Mm -hmm. um, and again, without sort of discounting the importance and the, and the gravity of her practice, the back room that David showed us, there's, there's something just so overdetermined, right, about walking into this room and seeing kind of soldiers march around the walls that I, I can't help but wonder. Um, overdetermined, I think, is the word I want to take over to Sarah and ask if she agrees with that. I mean, I think that in a way we've come from Diao where the question is raised as to whether this is somebody exploring a conceptual theme, sort of just using the language of ab abstraction rather than being within abstraction. There's almost a sense here, isn't there, that this is a, this is this is using the the look, and some of the strategies of conceptual art, but it's not joining the the central um, program, if you like, of conceptual art of of investigating language so much as simply using it to make a, to get a message across. Did you did you have that sense at all? I really loved the show. I didn't think it was particularly overdetermined. Um, as you saw, there a lot of the work. It's just exquisite and very seductive. The map. I don't know if you could tell. With a, it's a world map made of three layered pieces of very beautiful quality white paper, and the land masses are made. Um, 
the artists tore um, the countries out of the paper and then in layering them, the edges are just very delicate and the grenades are very visually seductive and all of this work um, about this landmass and that landmass and then she had some very nice um, oil and ink drawings on cardboard that were of clouds and they're also sort of separate entities. They're all food trays, aren't they? The yeah. used um, takeout tra yes. trays, yes. Um, so, I mean, in addition but to But you're just enjoying it then at a formal level, is that okay? No, it's not just at a formal level. I think it's also extremely topical when um, the idea of national and personal security is um, on everyone's mind. I mean, in every country, every person. Um, and to me, it brought up this sort of linguistic idea, and maybe I'm projecting here, I probably am, but of, you know, as soon as you make a mark and divide this country from that country and me from you, um, there's a certain amount of violence that's done. And we live in this world where we have to socialize and divide things into, I mean, we are distinct people and we have to um, express our ideas in distinct words and you know, form countries and operate that way. But there is a certain amount of violence involved and I had sort of an amazing moment in the back room with um, the soldiers spinning around the room and I can see why you would say it was overdetermined, but um, it was making me dizzy. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had this sort of amazing moment when I focused on one soldier, and I was lucky to be in the room alone. I'm not sure I would have done this if there were other people in there with me, but if you focused on one soldier and sort of spun around the room and kept your eyes on it only, mm -hmm. then the dizziness would subside. And I thought that was sort of a metaphorically profound thing, like how difficult it is to concentrate on a spinning multiplicity of things um, and our own psychic need to divide things into this and that um, sort of stands in stark contrast to um, the need for us to recognize that we all, I mean, are yes. in this together, if that's yes. not too corny. No, no, no. <laughs> we allow corniness anyway, so that's fine. Uh, John, did you feel comfortable with the relationship of her... Uh, craft achievement with the, um, uh, the messages or the, the feelings that you were getting from the show? Well, I just want to say I think that was a beautiful metaphor. <laughs> it really, uh, when I walked into that back room, I, I felt that sense of spinning vertigo. And you could say there's such a uh, kind of light uh, footstep that it's, it's difficult to feel the kind of import, especially uh, right on the heels of these international events, you know, where you think, you know, that all these lives have been lost just so recently. And, and um, really what, what is sort of beguiling and mystifying about Hatoum's practice is her gentleness and her delicacy, as you've mentioned. And, and so if you're accustomed to you know, the Thomas Hirshhorn photographs of atrocities in Mideast wars and so forth and, and the, the iron skillet approach of um, addressing such subject matter, it's, it's difficult to get into something that seems so very slight and so aestheticized. I think this is really um, shares with David Dio, but also with Alex Bagg, using a language of formalism uh, to address larger narrative, political, personal themes. And a little history on Hatoum, you know, she went to school in London, and so she's kind of a forever wandering homeless in terms of her identity. Uh, artist borrowing from the language of minimalism. Some of her early works looked almost like Tony Smith in their monumentality. And it was very much the sense of the performance and the body. The piece that most seemed like that in this show was that cheese grater bed where you felt the kind of physical pleasure or pain 
you know, kind of described by it. And that was the most overt piece. But ultimately, I ended up liking the, the, the you know, pieces made of cardboard, the food trays with the stains and so forth, because in something that seems so slight, they seem to, in a more metaphorical and poetical way, like you described, Sarah, describe this oddly displaced persona where there's not a heavy moral imperative placed on the work. It's more an ongoing uh, process of self-discovery. And I think that that's something that she shares with both Alex Bagg and David Dio. Mm-hmm. Great. Wonderful. Uh, anyone burning to say anything else about... Uh, I mean, we'll perhaps come come back to her with the discussion with the... Uh, um, I mean, there seems to be a consensus that's um, appreciative of the poetics of her her lightness um, among us, um, or among you, I should say. Um, I remain somewhat skeptical, um, uh, but um, find myself wanting to like the show perhaps more than I do. I, I think it's a very difficult show when you walk into it to to get it 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 because of the way the works are arranged in the gallery, because of the fact they're split between upstairs and downstairs, all made in different media. Some of them are quite seemingly flippant. Others have a high degree of uh, production. Uh, I I think that it's quite easy to kind of do a heel spin and say, I don't get it. No, I got it. I I didn't have any problem (laughs) with that. I just feel that Johanna's word of suspicion of overdetermined was, for me, uh, crucial to this, this the whole experience of, of her work. I mean, I've followed her work for many years. Uh, coming, we, you know, she's she obviously her career started in Britain, and um, I've been been aware of it for a long while. Um, it's just always been. Um, uh, found it impenetrable because of its. Coolness and it's um, it's um, but I think that I I I like your idea, John, about the sense of alienation that one gets from her work, relating in a way to her diasporist uh, situation. <laughs> if one can, as one was supposed to, borrow the phrase of Abi Kitai to apply to a, a Palestinian um, artist. Um, let's move on to our last show, which is. Uh, you could say, now for something completely different. We've been to see a, a small show in the project room, one of the project spaces at, uh, Brent, at, at Sycamore Jenkins Gallery of uh, Amy Silman. These, these are all um, 30 inches by 22 inches wide, hung uh, on, on two walls adjacent. It's this set of um, gouache and pencil Color pencil works on paper. been an evening uh, where we seem to be constantly segueing from one show to the other and finding it's almost come together as a panel where we've, with each artist, certainly the first three artists we've looked at, 
discussion of one has constantly referred to the, the previous two. Now, I don't, want to, I don't feel if I could lead on, uh, Simon, that uh, we want to over-determine uh, a new direction or the meaning of this show in relation to the artist's career in, in that it's a project room show rather than, a, a, as it were, a big statement. And it's in the nature of a project room that one might either explore a new idea or uh, in, indulge or, or uh, work with one aspect of what one does. But I can't help feeling, in relation to the way we've looked at um, uh, the, the, um, the whole relationship between uh, personal meaning and practice in relation to the other three artists we've, we've talked about this evening, that it's kind of curious here that uh, here we have a painter who's really established um, her, her practice in relation to a very diaristic, intensely personal narrative um, sensibility um, and, and a sense of, 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 of content in work. Um, actually, as it were, um, giving us a slice of a very distilled, almost pure kind of abstraction in, in these works. Um, I'm not saying that they are purist abstraction, or that they're, you know, uh, the, or that they're in any way reductive, um, but they are very, very seductive. Um, I've just found myself really loving and enjoying them and thinking them to be um, a great deal more formally satisfying and resolved than um, many of the works I've seen of, and enjoyed. I've enjoyed her work immensely over the years, and usually found myself enjoying the difficultness and the lack of resolve in the work. Here we have. It's a bit like a composer known for very long, difficult symphonies actually giving you six beautiful little songs. Um, um, so it makes you wonder, gosh, is there something in those symphonies that I was not getting? My experience was one of um, pleasure confounded by the fact that she's not an artist who usually gives such unalloyed pleasure. <laughs> John, was that anything in like your... Uh, your reaction to this show? Uh, well, I think you have to ask the larger question of why does a certain artist emerge at a certain time and seem to be responding to that moment? And why do so many people respond to Silman's work right now as a painter, perhaps as an abstract painter? She certainly seems to be in her moment. Part of this has to do with a major show that she did at Sycamore Jenkins probably eight months ago, also followed uh, by an exhibition at the Hirshhorn in Washington. So she is enjoying a moment. But a little bit about her history. Um, she uh, also, I think, is a hero figure to a lot of people in the New York art community because she was early a pioneer of the Williamsburg art scene. Um, and she helped to coalesce that scene by uh, running or co-directing an alternative gallery called Four Walls and she has taught at the Bard Graduate Center. So she's very much a part of a larger sense of dialogue. Uh, her work, as David noted, has developed from figurative, almost cartoonographic, kind of goofy, weird work that was struggling uh, between overt narrative and abstraction into something that's much more distilled and elegant, uh, seemingly uh, Matissean or Diebenkorn-like in terms of weighing uh, gentle linear elements against uh, blocks of color and so forth. So she is becoming sort of a master of her own idiom. And I enjoy this type of work because it's really somebody who has taught herself to paint her own painting. 
And I always like that quality in a painter, somebody who has taken their own awkwardnesses and embraced them as their strengths. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and I feel that uh, what you're seeing here is this kind of collision whereby content is falling away, overt content, to allow what for me is a more exciting kind of content, which is a kind of internalness becoming external. And uh, this small show demonstrates her at that particular juncture. Mm. Mm. So, uh, Sarah, um, did you relate? Did you feel that these were tense, awkward works, or, or very resolved um, sort of nuggets to enjoy? How, and 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 how? And, and have you followed someone's work to the extent that you would relate that response to your previous experience of her? Well, I loved her show eight months ago at Sycamore Jenkins. I thought it was spectacular, and I thought this one was as well. I felt like these were very resolved, um, small, um, extremely sensual, pleasurable things to look at. Um, they're just detailed, and the um, level of attention she pays to her medium, the tooth of the paper, the watermark in the paper, the viscosity of the paint, the variations on an orange or a blue, and mm. they're very, very layered in the transparency versus, the, I mean, it's mm. just, just really fun to look at. And I um, can't remember them when I, I'm not with them. <laughs> and I was sort of thinking about that in terms of David Dio. I mean, they were very, I mean, you can kind of conjure up the whole show in your head, even once you've left. And I can't mm -hmm. remember these paintings. I just, because they're more rich, they're complex They're so complex. And right. um, they're really subtle things that um, you see in they the moment. They don't reduce to signs. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I read something, I forget where, about um, her process. Um, mm. And she was talking about how the need to make her own paintings rather than use assistants, which um, a lot of successful painters do. And she talked about when she paints her own paintings, it's um, painting her doubt. And I think that that's something that you really feel looking at these works, is that um, she's engaged in a very active struggle when she's making them, or not a struggle, it's sort of like a balancing act. There's a lot of tension, and um, I, I think there's a certain level of mastery that she just like can do that and know also when to back off, so that they do feel quite resolved. Yes. Johanna, though, am I alone in sort of having um, a, a curious relationship to, to works which are sort of distilled, beautiful, and in many ways, very conservative works. I mean, you could actually come across works that look very remarkably similar to these paintings um, in, in Paris in the 1950s, or London, or, or, or Germany. They look to me like non-American abstract expressionist paintings, and um, which, which uh, didn't really, which, which were, I have no problem with, because I'm not a perennial avant-gardist, and if an artist is producing beautiful, heartfelt, good work in, in, in any, any idiom, that's cool with me. But here is an artist who, about eight months ago, as it were, was playing this very bravura game with a very contemporary style. So um, what, what is going on? What do you, what do you make of this? Um, uh, what do you make of the, the comfort level of these pictures? Um, I guess f for me, I don't see as as much of a split between I've I've followed Amy's work for a really long time and um, in fact I mean one thing that's very interesting to me about what you're saying David is that it does call to mind you know an Ellsworth Kelly who was figuring out 
um, just how to think about representation and abstraction and their relationship. In interestingly, pieces like the tennis court piece that he did in, in Paris, where mm. he reduces um, something like the tennis court to to as few lines as he can, and then asks us to not see it as what it is. But but Amy, one thing that's very important, and Sarah touched on this too. I've spent time with her in the studio, and she's. It's a very anxious process. There's not a lot of comfort there in the process at all. And in fact, she'll have people over to say like, "Is it done? Have I finished it?" And you know, she's kind of one step away from totally ruining the whole thing, or maybe pushing it to the next level, and she's not sure. Um, so there is this very kind of material. She's really invested intellectually in the way that the kind of material unfolds, but. Why I, I think this question about conservatism is so interesting is in part I think it's always important to historicize the contemporary and what does it mean for um, a, a painter right now to be painting abstract work? How does that actually read within um, a kind of context that may or may not privilege um, that kind of work? And I think with Amy in particular, the move that people are articulating from um, as I think John nicely put it, a kind of cartoonish figuration into kind of a cleaner or at least more recognizable, um, elegant um, abstraction, for me, shouldn't be actually held apart in that way. If you look really closely at these, even these um, smaller works, there are arms and legs and fingers. Um, there are bodies in these, in these works, and they haven't disappeared. Um, they're there fighting to kind of figure out where they appear and disappear, and she she talks about her work as um, showing processes of interaction and, and intercourse, and um, they're meant to be embarrassing and visceral as much as they, they are elegant. And in the Hirshhorn show that John described these beautiful um, abstract works, they actually come from sketches that she does of couples um, who will sit, are, are asked to pose however they like. Some people got naked immediately. Other people sat on opposite sides of the room. Um, if you didn't know that these things were kind of what the driving formal force was, you would not necessarily see it. But to me, it's quite important. And I think if, again, if you look closely at these things, you'll see that there's, there are limbs. There are, and it's not that I want to hold on to representation here, but I do think instead of a kind of, um, as though she's gro growing up and maturing out of some kind of tendency <laughs> towards representation and becoming, you know, an old man abstractionist. I think we should hold <laughs> tight to the fact that something else is going on, or at least for me, that's a very interesting aspect of your, the work. Your description of her process makes her sound like Cecily Brown for grown-ups. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, the 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 limbs are definitely there to be seen in this this body of work. Right, I mean, right. one, but 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 that doesn't. Uh, make them a sort of contemporary feminist deconstruction of abstraction because not, not so all. much abstract art has the figure in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, they look the, the limb forms are very sort of Joel Shapiro-like. Um, Absolutely. The the whole the paintings are very reminiscent of a painter like Roger Hilton, who, whose name may not mean much here, but uh, who's an abstract a British abstract painter of the 50s and 60s who used the figure. As well. No, no, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to claim it as just a feminist kind of um, motivation, but I do think it's a it's something that doesn't want to leave the realm of the bodily right. and the corporeal, and I think that's important. Great. That's well, we've got two shows there that really I'm sure people are dying to let off a little uh, steam about. <laughs> uh, let's try and go back to in our to, in the audience's collective mind to the the Hatoum first, so we can divide the discussion between these two artists. So uh, please, until I mention. Silman's name again. Stick your mind to uh, to Hatoum. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, the Hatoum show. 
Um, when I walked in, as you've been alluding to this uh, on the panel, um, I'd look at something and I would say, I get it, I get it. But when I went into the back room and I saw the Mizbah, the lantern, I at first looked at the lantern itself and it had a kind of, not that this, the subject of a boy with a gun is sinister, but the approach was almost folk art-like in the cutouts. Mm -hmm. And the unexpected, the unpredictable uh, thing that happened next with this vertiginous spinning, I thought that was kind of arresting and fascinating. So I loved the unpredictability of that particular piece. I think that she's too sleek. I know her <laughs> works for a very, very long time. And she, uh, she raises in my eyes, I am an Israeli artist who lives here and really speaks a kind of artistic uh, local language, but she uh, raises the Palestinian flag, but she, her language is in London. Too sleek, too elegant, sophisticated, of course, tongue-in-cheek, of course. Uh, I don't think that she aches, really. And I think it is too obvious in her work. Ah, not enough angst and too much um, uh, YBA slickness for that commentator. Okay. Um, anyone want to speak up for Hatoum? And, uh, and, and yes, we do. So and towards the front. Excellent. <laughs> Um, I had a friend who showed me an Afghani rug she bought that uh, had a, a automatic weapons worked in as yeah. a motif. Um, so I thought very much about that um, in terms, of, when someone said folk art, now we're inundated with pop culture and there's cultures. I was thinking of David Jow's show and, um, and Mona Hatoum's as extremely, um, bringing forth this, this uh, calligraphic uh, uh, tradition and using these idioms that are, are, are you know, thousands of years old or decorative things in Islam and China. And I was also thinking aestheticizing grief and mourning is nothing new. Uh, go to a cemetery, marble tombstones. So I saw the shows as uh, mm -hmm. not sleek, at all, and not cold. Right. I saw them as, as working with elegy mm -hmm. and mourning and grief in ways that traditional cultures do, sitting shiva, all kinds of rituals that, that people don't really express themselves in this Alex bag way. That's a very new thing in the world. <laughs> yes. Great. Thank you. Anyone else on Hatoum? Yes. Uh, you used the term um, overly determined a lot. Mm. And I think <laughs> it's an art world uh, or critical ah, term. And I just wondered if you could explain that a little. Well, I think it's not really a term exclusive to the art world. But um, 
Joe Hannah, you're an educator. <laughs> give us a give us a one line definition of overdetermined. It's a Freudian term that I use way too much, and I apologize. Uh, it just means that that it's so um, literally overflowing with its kind of. Uh, f- for instance, um, you know, big sticks are phallic. For instance, it's overdetermined. Um, that the meaning is so on the surface that it's. It's not about mystery. It's literally about kind of social code encoding um, in in a particular um, way in which it kind of does its function to, to to such a degree that it doesn't it can't function except as a sort of in a bloated way. Bloated is probably a good a, a better. Does bloated work? <laughs> bloated with meaning? No, I think overdetermined is fine. I mean, I mean, bloated is a real. And um, overdetermined means. No, I mean to explain it. I th- okay, yeah, I think the problem. I think overdetermined to me. I wasn't thinking of it in a Freudian term. I just heard it in the ten- sense of the I- intention that there, there was a, a rather a overly easy passage from an intention to the realization. Usually, what you want in art is the interesting bit in art is usually the wavy line that's between the intention and the realization. Overdetermined work is, this is going to represent the uh, alienation and angst of a a dispersed people who've got nowhere comfortable to sit, and uh, here's a cheese grater with these uh, punctured marks. That would be, to my mind, overdetermined. Here's a a dispossessed nation that's been rubbed against the cheese grater of history, and and here's a cheese grater. That's, to me, (laughs) overdetermined. But to others, it's subtle and poetic. So that's why we have the review panel to debate uh, the matter. Okay, let's Thanks. let's have a few minutes on uh, Sarah uh, on Amy Silman. Um, uh, these these abstract paintings that some of us um, thought were rather interestingly dislocated from the artist's more goofy um, uh, narrative-led earlier work, and others of us thought no. They all sit together very beautifully. So there's quite a few hands going up, so let's, let's pass the mic around. Great, thank you. You started to make a statement about the place of abstract art in contemporary art today and never really completed that statement. Um, I'm wondering... I'm wondering if, no, no, you, David. I'm wondering if, uh, <laughs> if abstract art is today is only valid if it refers to something figurative and however obtuse that ref- um, referral is. Well, I think we'd all want to say that the abstraction must be in trouble if that's the case. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not it like representational painting is out of the woods either. I mean, like there's a, people, painting in general, always people feel like they have to explain it. I wasn't trying to save, just so you know, her work by saying there were figures in it. I'm saying, though, that I don't think one needs to necessarily uh, make a kind of ev- evolution model for her because I don't think that's what she's trying to do. Um, but I know your question was for David, but I just wanted to say... No, that it's, 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 for, the, it's for, the, for all of us, and also we're interested in statements, not questions, because we're all... Ex- we, we've, we've, but, but if you've got a question, please do ask it, but, <laughs> but statements are really welcome. Yes. But John was about to say something. Oh, John. If I could, yeah. I mean, I think for all that abstraction has achieved as an incredibly cerebral and sophisticated language... It, it often feels you know, reduced to a mere narrative form sometimes, 
by some of today's practitioners. And much as I do like these Silman works, I would caution people, you know, we, we say, I said, why do people respond to these works right now? And, and then David Cohen said, well, you know, they look like works from the 50s or the 60s, and we use the term conservatism. And certainly paintings that uh, employ a lot of labor and reworking and figuration uh, can be seen as retrograde or reassuring in certain terms because they're less questioning the viewer to uh, reach some type of alternative reality uh, through other means of abstraction. So I, you know, uh, I do think that those are valid issues that we could draw to accuse ourselves of why we are at this particular juncture and why we find this work so uh, telling of our moment. Thank you, excellent. Uh, thanks. Can you hear me okay? Great. Um, I think I'm probably going to regret making this statement because uh, Amy Hillman <laughs> is such a well-loved painter and I've been so taken with her works in the past, but I was just feeling a little lonely listening to everybody talking because I, I didn't think that show was very successful at all, and I just thought yeah. in terms of the, the criteria that she sets out herself, and I love the mm -hmm. line about her teaching herself to paint, I really didn't think these things worked very well. and. Uh, I guess I just feel like it wouldn't hurt her overall project to actually be more challenging uh, in terms of scale, scale of mark, variety of mark, uh, things represented. I felt they were actually quite, um, you know, they looked actually easily done and I felt like some of the things she was being applauded for, you know, making her own paintings and struggling hard, being intellectual about them as she's working on them, are things that really every painter should be doing, I, I would think. Um, and uh, I guess I just felt, I love her as a painter, but I just was a little disappointed in this show. I like the comment that you said about reassurance and that, um, you know, you're gonna question yourselves also, um, especially what, was seen tonight. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I feel like all of them, maybe I was looking at a private showing of their sketchbook maybe, and you know, when you said reassurances, sketchbook kept coming up. I'm seeing the work, but not really the final work. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, I mean I don't, Funnily enough, it's the very opposite of what I was saying because I was saying that they were uncharacteristically resolved for her work. But maybe to get to her big irresolution, she needs these little resolutions. And so uh, unlike most artists who do little sketches in their sketchbook, she does things which are less sketchy in the sketchbook than in the finished painting. But I don't think that. <laughs> Anyone else take the sketch, want to go with sketchbooks? I guess, I mean, I, would, I just wanted to go back to both of these comments bring up something that I think is very important, actually, which is, um, I think we're all, or at least I'm speaking about a, a, a practice that I've watched over years and years, so I may not be speaking particularly just about the, the works on view, but um, it's also important to remember what the institutional kind of um, desire is. So at this moment in the economy, we're like nothing, her big paintings probably are having a harder time. They probably did ask for smaller, you know, works to be hung and sold more, because these are actually um, economic times when drawings and smaller works 
sell, and bigger works don't. So, I mean, there's a way in which I actually think one has to call attention to that and, and revise expectations, not only around the work and how it's being kind of framed, but what the moment is. So I think your, your comments are um, important in that, in that regard as well, without speaking sort of, you know. I mean, she makes huge, huge paintings, as we've seen, so. Are you, is John making faces at me? No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just making faces, no. That's a, that's a you know, a thing. <laughs> not at you. But do it, come on, I'll turn my head. So perhaps but those of us who like small scale and, and, and drawings must now feel guilty about being so happy with the recession, so. <laughs> um, anyone who hasn't spoken yet who'd like to get, get, a, get something on Amy Silman? Uh, all right, you look a new face. Let's have something. Um, I have to say, I'm probably the only person that's ever worked as a gallery assistant to pierogi and sideshow. So, um, uh, and I know John Zinzer uh, has written about Larry Poonzen, and he, I would say Williamsburg has often been characterized as pierogi, and I see Amy pushing more towards the sideshow. There, the, there's Bill Jensen, Nick Carone, uh, Russell Roberts, who's over there. Um, there's a lot of this kind of painting in Williamsburg. <laughs> okay, great, thank you. Good. It's worth, worth knowing. Uh, uh, great. Well, actually, a member of the audience asked me earlier on, they said it would be fascinating if you could just tell us how you select the shows. And if that's a, a, something that is of interest, let me just tell you how. It's, um, it's a scientific process and an, and an art at the same time. <laughs> But just so you know, there's no, there's no sinister conspiracies occurring. It happens very simply like this. Um, I draw up a menu of all the shows that are eligible. Now, the shows are eligible if they're a new body of work by a living artist, and they're on show two weeks before the panel occurs, and one day after it does. I mean, two weeks or longer, or one week or longer. So, so one day minimum uh, after like tomorrow, and two weeks minimum as in two weeks ago. So it gives us all a chance to to see the show. Then I send that long list, the big menu, as it were. Oh, by the way, it also has to be somebody that we haven't discussed in the past, and it has to be one body of work, so a retrospective exhibition is not so welcome. Then it goes to the, uh, the guests who chip in their comments, and then I collate from their <laughs> wish lists something so that everybody has at least one show that they are invested in. And uh, there's often, interestingly, consensus that uh, even with the 40 or 50 shows that are on the long list, people do often gravitate towards... Often you do see the same show on two or three lists, which is reassuring in itself. There's some possibility of consensus around quality. Um, and uh, then I make sure that we're not discussing a, an, a, an all-male panel or all-painter panel or uh, uh, all... Uh, uh, whatever panel, so that we have a little diversity of medium and personnel in what we look at. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's how the review panel's done. See you on March 20th. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Great.